a scripture reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, God, we thank you that we don't have to guess about who you are and what you've done, that you've told us plainly and clearly. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear of your goodness. Father, may we see Jesus this morning. May he be lifted up. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Uh, the story of a missionary named Alan Gardner was recently brought to my attention. Uh, Gardner was a British man born in the 18th century, um, and though he was born into a Christian family, he decided at a pretty early age that he didn't really want anything to do with the faith of his family. He went on to become an officer in the British Navy and dove headlong into a military career. But on a voyage in which he visited South Africa, India, Malaysia, and China, a spiritual crisis resulted in an emphatic conversion to Christianity. Spreading the good news about Jesus, that became his life's pursuit. And he traveled around the world, trekking through difficult terrain, encountering hostile groups, all for the sake of the advance of the gospel. He carried out this work for a little over a decade. But tragically, uh, on a mission to Bolivia, Gardner and his crew of six men became stranded. And over time, disease and hunger overtook all of them. And Gardner and his crew's bodies were discovered the following year, along with Gardner's diary. So he kept detailed notes of everything that they had faced on their journey. Now, given the circumstances, one might expect Gardner's diary to be filled with despair as he and his companions slowly became weak and died. But that is not at all the case. Gardner's diary is soaked with scripture, and he wrote original poems praising God for his goodness, despite all that he was facing. A few months before he died, when things looked pretty grim, he wrote this. June 28th, Saturday, my birthday. Who am I, O Lord God, that thou hast brought me hitherto? 
We are now, by the providence of God, brought into circumstances which to the flesh are trying. But I will not be anxious on that account. We are in the Lord's service, and he is merciful and full of compassion. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Still I pray that if it is consistent with thy gracious or thy righteous will, O my heavenly Father, thou wouldst look down with compassion upon me and my companions. But if otherwise, thy will be done. May I learn entire submission of my will to thine. May every high place of pride be abased in my heart. Lord, I pray that thou mayest be honored in me, whether by life or by death, and that I may never depart from thee. And God did answer that last, that last prayer. His life wasn't spared, but he never departed from his Lord, as evidenced by the last words of, the last recorded words of Gardner that we have. These were in a letter that he wrote to someone named Mr. Williams. He says, Dear Mr. Williams, the Lord has seen fit to call home another of our little company. Our dear departed brother left the boat on Tuesday at noon and has not since returned. Doubtless, he is in the presence of his Redeemer, whom he served so faithfully. Yet a little while, and through grace, we may join that blessed throng to sing the praises of Christ throughout eternity. I neither hunger nor thirst, though five days without food. Marvelous loving kindness to me, a sinner, your affectionate brother in Christ. Such pain, such suffering, yet so much joy and hope throughout. And I think this testimony begs the question, how, how on earth did he achieve joy in the midst of so much suffering? Well, Gardner caught a vision of Christ and his goodness. He saw the beauty and the glory of the gospel and everything else paled in comparison making it so that he could not only endure hardship, but find joy in the midst of it. Find joy as he let go. Let go of his dreams and ambitions. Let go of his ego. Let go of his life. And what he was doing, or what he did, is exactly what we see Paul doing in our passage this morning. We read in these verses that Paul was in prison, which, you know, I've never been, but... I don't hear good things. But not only was he in prison, there are people out there trying to cause further trouble for him. They're trying to afflict him while he is suffering in chains. They're doing a good thing, he tells us. They're preaching Christ, but they're doing so with ugly motivations, likely trying to discredit Paul in some way or detract from his ministry in an attempt to bolster their own. And what is Paul's reaction to this? He doesn't care. He writes in verse 18, What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. See, Paul's driving force, the thing that he cared most about, was Christ and his kingdom. And that put everything else in perspective. So I'd encourage you to think for just a moment. What is your driving force? 
What things are you clinging to? Are there things that you feel like you simply cannot do without, go on without? A vision of life or a family, of career, of status that you cannot bear letting go of? Does it seem impossible to find joy in letting go? Well, God has something to say to us through this text. So the joy in letting go is going to be our focus this morning. And we're going to look at two avenues in which Paul let go. The first of which was his personal plans. See, Paul, before becoming an apostle, right, the faithful witness to Christ in chains, had a very different life with very different goals, ambitions, and a view of the way that things should have been. A little later on in this same letter, and we'll look at these verses uh, more in depth in a, in a couple of weeks, Paul talks about some of his previous pursuits. He writes in chapter 3, I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. See, before, before coming to Christ, Paul was a Pharisee. These were prominent Jewish leaders known for their deep study of and strict adherence to the Hebrew scriptures. They were respected members of society. And in Acts, Paul lays out his credentials again, explaining further that I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, referring to Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. See, Paul was born in Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey, but he was raised in Jerusalem, which is the city of God. Educated by one of the most prominent Pharisaic teachers, he says, in the strictness of the ancestral law. Paul's pedigree was perfect. How about that for an accidental alliteration? That was a good time. He had a life. He had a plan. And most likely a definite vision regarding how things ought to go. But then he met Jesus. Everything changed. Everything about his previous pursuits it just went right out the window. After encountering Christ, seeing his goodness, experiencing his mercy and grace, how does Paul look at his former life? How does he look at his former accomplishments? He says this, But everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Paul's accomplishments are dung in comparison to knowing Jesus. And what of his hardships? Well, he ends up boasting in those things. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lays out a resume of suffering, explaining that since coming to Jesus, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. And at that time, it meant something different. It wasn't good. He didn't like it. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. And he goes on to explain that if boasting is necessary, he's going to boast about his weaknesses. He's going to boast about his hardships. Why? Because Jesus has revealed to him this difficult but powerful truth. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So then Paul says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Consider for just a moment, how do you feel about weaknesses? About the idea of being truly vulnerable, not being able to do life on your own, or pick yourself up. I think for many, if not most of us, this idea is deeply uncomfortable. But if we remain there, we will miss out on important aspects of our union with Christ. I think many of us would choose the intimacy without the pain, but for reasons beyond our understanding that doesn't appear to be how things work on this side of glory. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we see throughout Paul's life that these weren't mere words. And we see these truths, the truths that he espouses, being applied personally in this passage. Paul is writing this letter from prison. The man who used to put Christians in prison is now in prison for Christ. On one level, I'm sure this would have been horribly disorienting for him. It would have been troubling, to say the least. But what does Paul have to say about his current predicament? Let's read verses 12 through 14. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. I mean, do you sense his excitement here in these verses? Instead of looking at his circumstances, thinking about the shame of his predicament, how low he had fallen, instead of thinking about the comforts he could be enjoying right now, instead of languishing in prison, Instead of holding on to former dreams, right, plans about how things should have gone, he is able to find joy in his circumstances because Christ for him has become preeminent. Jesus and the advance of the gospel is for Paul the most important thing. 
I remember seeing uh, this type of selflessness uh, a while back, probably about 10 years ago, in a, in a college basketball game. Uh, it, was, uh, it was the Elite Eight game between Dallas and, not Dallas, just kidding, uh, between Duke, Lord help us, uh, Duke and Louisville. And I know if you're from Kentucky or have been to Kentucky, like I'm not saying it right, and I'm sorry. You're going to have to put up with you know, my pronouncement, Louisville. Well, pretty early on in the game, uh, Kevin Ware, a player for, sorry, Louisville, he suffered a, a horrible injury. Uh, he broke his leg in two spots, and it's like, it's truly disturbing. If you want something disturbing to watch, go look up Kevin Ware on YouTube. You'll see things you wish you could unsee. But what was amazing about this injury, although the injury was itself amazing, and just a side note, I read a This is a 10-year-old event, and I looked up Kevin Ware, and I found a New York Times article about him printed last year. It's like, what happened to Kevin Ware? Well, he apparently went on to play play professional basketball in in Europe, and he says that, like, wherever he goes, that injury follows him, to the point where he was at a donut shop in Finland, and someone asked him, like, is your leg okay? But in the moment, the thing that was so noticeable wasn't so much the injury itself, but Ware's reaction to it. In an interview, his coach said, Ware's bone was sticking six inches out of his leg, and he's yelling, I'll be fine, win the game, win the game. Coach says, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. Initially, Ware showed absolutely no concern for himself, and his team went on to beat Duke by 22 points. Ware was seen crying after the game, but he explained, it was more, it was me crying tears of joy. I was so proud of how they played. Even when he took the time to process his injury, his grief soon turned to happiness because his team's cause was moving forward. He was able to look past his circumstances and find joy in his team's advancement. His team went on to win the national championship that year, and Ware got the privilege of getting to cut the net down, although he he needed some help. See, instead of being troubled and ashamed, oh, sorry, this is exactly that, that attitude, that selflessness, that, that, that fixation on the cause is exactly what we see demonstrated by Paul here in this passage. See, instead of being troubled and ashamed by his imprisonment, he sees his imprisonment as an opportunity to share the gospel with a whole new audience. Right now he gets to share the gospel because he's in prison with the imperial guard. The mission and not self was the most important thing. Christ and not self was the most important thing. Because of that, Paul wasn't afraid of suffering. In fact, he could find joy in its midst. He knows that Christ will meet him in his suffering. And he knows that Christ can and will use Paul's suffering for good purposes. And he points out two of those purposes here in this text. One is a new mission field has been opened up to Paul. He now has a unique ministry to the imperial guard. And second, we read that Paul's example has emboldened others to preach more courageously. Paul was able to find joy as he let go of his vision for his life. Do you think that it could be possible for you to do the same? 
Now, I think it's hard for any of us to envision our lives taking the type of turn that we see Paul's taking here in this passage. But I think we can perhaps wrap our minds around finding joy in difficult circumstances if we, like Kevin Ware, get to be lifted up as a hero afterwards. If we've got a whole team around us supporting us. But Paul, while he did have some folks come to his aid, he also had some major detractors who attempted to increase his suffering during his imprisonment. But part of what makes this passage so powerful is that Paul not only demonstrates joy in letting go of his plans, he also demonstrates joy in letting go of his ego. And that's what we're going to look at next. I want us to read verses 15 all the way through the end of our passage, verse 20. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the, from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, in verse 14, Paul celebrates the fact that, that many have been emboldened to preach because of his example. But he points out in verse 15 that some are motivated by envy and rivalry. But he isn't terribly concerned about their motives. God is. And these preachers are going to have to give account to God, as do all preachers who, who dare to step into a pulpit, which is a humbling and terrifying truth. But Paul's job isn't to judge their hearts. Rather, in listening to their content, it's clear. It's clear to Paul that they are preaching Christ. That they're pointing to the gospel, which Paul summarizes in 1 Corinthians 15. In this way, I'm just going to read verses 3 and 4 here. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It seems likely that these other people are preaching a message similar to what I just read from 1 Corinthians 15, but they're doing so for the wrong reasons. One commentator speculates that these leaders were jealous of Paul's reputation, and they were determined to outdo him, and only too ready to cause him anguish. He says that part of what they are trying to do is cause trouble, Paul says this, cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. Now the phrase translated, cause me trouble, is a Greek word that, that literally means friction. And what he's doing is he's painting a picture, he's giving us a vivid image of the painful rubbing of iron chains against a prisoner's hands and feet. These preachers are, are seeking to agitate, they're seeking to irritate Paul as he is helpless in prison unable to defend himself. But did their preaching have its desired effect? Not even close. 
What does Paul say? What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Paul is actively being discredited. His life's work, the work that he is currently suffering for, is being called into question. And what is his reaction? Joy. Joy in the progress of the gospel. Because despite these terrible motivations, the gospel is going forward. Paul's life motto appears to be, not I, but Christ. Is there a more countercultural stance that one could take? Psychologists and other researchers have pointed out the massive increase in narcissism in our culture over the last several decades. Uh, one study in the journal uh, Social, Psychological, and Personality Science, it's a fun read, uh, found that the percentage of college students exhibiting narcissistic personality traits based on their scores on the narcissistic personality inventory, which is a widely used diagnostic test, it has increased by more than half since the early 1980s, saying that nearly 30% of college students demonstrate narcissistic personality traits. David Brooks, in a recent article in The Atlantic, talked about uh, one of the manifestations of narcissism that we see on a regular basis. Now, typically, when we picture a narcissist, we, we think of someone who is bold and brash, who very clearly makes everything about themselves, right? The whole world exists for me. That's what we think of. And we may think, you know, I'm not like that, therefore, I'm not a narcissist. But he points out that more and more people are falling under a category that psychologists call vulnerable narcissism. And he describes it in this way. He says, vulnerable narcissists are the more common figures in our day. People who are addicted to thinking about themselves, but who often feel anxious, insecure, avoidant, intensely sensitive to rejection. They scan for hints of disrespect. Their self-esteem is wildly in flux. Their uncertainty about their inner worth triggers cycles of distrust, shame, and hostility. Now, as a navel-gazing millennial, I take personal offense to this. feel attacked, but that's okay. Now, while this may be more and more common in a culture like ours, that no longer has a shared set of values, an origin story, a meaning that transcends circumstances, the reality is that this description really is the natural condition of our egos. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul warns the church about the danger of becoming arrogant. And the word that we see translated as arrogant here is a word that literally means puffed up or to be overinflated, swollen or distended beyond proper size. And we see here and throughout the Bible that this is the natural condition of our egos. They're overinflated. They are puffed up. They are fragile and ready to burst. Now, while this may be the natural condition of our egos, this is not how they are supposed to be. You can think about it this way. Have you noticed that there are certain parts of your body that you don't pay any attention to unless there's something wrong with them? Like, for example, I doubt any of you, when you were walking into the sanctuary this morning, paid any attention to your big toes or your pinky toes, for that matter, any of your toes. 
You're not walking in here thinking, wow, my toes are doing everything that a toe is supposed to do. This is really cool. No, we, we don't think that way. When do you notice your toes? When something is wrong with them. Right? When you've stubbed them, when you've hurt them in some way. Well, friends, the same is true with our ego. God did not create us to be self-absorbed, to constantly think about ourselves. The reason that you notice your ego, the reason you pay attention to it is because there is something wrong with it. It's puffed up. It's overinflated and fragile. So how do we fix that? Well, friends, we fix that by looking to Jesus, by resting in the fact that we are secure, not because of our abilities, but because of his love and grace. Jesus' record, not our own, is what defines us. And that article, Brooks shares that, that vulnerable narcissists have a self-esteem that's wildly in flux because of an uncertainty about their inner worth. Well, in the gospel, our inner worth is dealt with definitively. Our worth is secure because Christ has made us his. Paul goes on to write in Philippians 3, not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Who needs acknowledgments or accolades from others? Who cares if there are people out discrediting us if we belong to Jesus? Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8. He says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we know this, when we know this in our bones, we can let go, we can let go of our egos, of the prison of constantly thinking about ourselves. We can let go and find joy. Well, in Christ, we can let go of our plans, of our egos, and find joy. But I think it's worth considering, what does that look like in our context? What does that look like in the midst of suffering? Not in the first century, not in the 18th century, but, but right now. What can it mean to find joy in letting go? Well, I came across a powerful example of this in a book called uh, A Praying Life. It was written by a man named Paul Miller, who together with his wife, Jill, has six kids. And he says that when Jill was pregnant with their youngest daughter, Kim, uh, she prayed a phrase uh, from Psalm 121 over, over her womb, asking that God would protect the baby from all harm. But when Kim was born, Miller says that everything went wrong. Uh, he recounts calling Jill's parents on, on the phone just after leaving the delivery room and just saying something's wrong with the baby before bursting into tears. They were overwhelmed with grief. And they were overwhelmed with the practical realities of raising a daughter with significant disabilities. 
He says that at one point, uh, Kim, in addition to having trouble walking, uh, trouble speaking, trouble seeing, uh, she also had trouble breathing. And this was especially a, a problem in the winter. They, they live in Philadelphia. Um, and so they, they had a furnace that they would run, and she, anytime they would run, their furnace just would wheeze, and, and it was almost impossible for her to breathe. And so they ended up converting their house to, to using a, um, an electric baseboard heat uh, system. Um, but he, and he says that that move, it helped Kim and her breathing, but it also put them in like dire financial straits. It says that for the next 20 years, their family lived paycheck to paycheck. And he looks back at this season, and he describes it as being as a season in the desert. And he writes this. He says, desert life sanctifies you. You have no idea you are changing. You simply notice after you've been in the desert a while that you're different. Things that used to be important no longer matter. For instance, before Kim was born, we used to have one of the kids comb the fringes of the living room rug so that it was perfect. Now we're lucky to find a comb for our own hair. But he writes... The desert becomes a window to the heart of God. He finally gets your attention because he's the only game in town. And he says that the best gift of the desert is the presence of God. And he points out how you can see this in Psalm 23. In the beginning of Psalm 23, God, our shepherd, is out in front of us. He is leading us beside quiet waters along right paths. And at the end of Psalm 23, God is behind us pursuing us with his love and grace. But in the middle of Psalm 23, God is right next to us, with us in the darkest valley, with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Miller says that, that he and his wife became aware very early on that God was using Kim in their lives in powerful ways, like humbling them, making them more and more like Jesus. And they could see God's hand in Kim's life and theirs throughout. One example uh, has to do with Kim's breathing problems. It says that 10 years later, after they installed the system, they, they sold their house. And when they did so, they found out that their gas furnace had been improperly installed and that Kim's condition made her particularly susceptible to the effects of carbon monoxide gas that was filling their home. She was like a, a canary that miners used to detect, that miners used to use to detect dangerous fumes. And so he says that in a very real way, Kim kept their whole family from very real harm. But years later, when Kim was about 20, Miller was sitting at his dining room table writing a Bible study on Psalm 121. So the, the, the passage that uh, Jill used to pray over Kim when she was in the womb. And he describes how Kim humbled he and Jill that her troubles with speech helped them to learn how to listen, how her helplessness taught them how to be helpless too. And throughout the book, he, he describes just the real joy that Kim brought to their family. And so his conclusion was that God did it, that God had answered Jill's prayer, that he had accomplished Psalm 21, Psalm 121. And he writes this, Kim brought Jesus into our home. Jill and I could no longer do life on our own. We needed Jesus to get from one end of the day to the other. We'd asked for a loaf of bread, and instead of giving us a stone, our Father had spread a feast for us in the wilderness. 
thank you, Jesus, for caring. So much of life doesn't turn out in the way that we think or expect. Desert seasons are real, they're hard, and they're inevitable. But we can find joy as we learn to let go. Let go of our plans, our expectations, our egos, because every step of the way, our shepherd is beside us. He's doing something in and through our pain, and nothing can separate us from his love. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the truth that you are always with us. Because you are for us, who can stand against us? Lord, we ask that you give us faith to trust in that reality, to know that you are our good shepherd, you are our father, and you lead us you pursue us, and when we are in the valley, you walk right beside us. Father, we pray that you would teach us that, that you teach it to us in, in real and meaningful ways so that as we let go, that we could find joy. We could find true joy, lasting joy in you. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.